Well, do turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11, which Colin read. And as we do, let's pray together and ask God for his help tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've sung those words, uh, you know that so often uh, our lives can be marked by challenges, by gloom, by misery, uh, by difficulties. And yet we thank you tonight for your word and we pray uh, for the help of your Holy Spirit as we speak and as we listen. We ask that you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ and help us have our eyes fixed on him. And be near to any of us here, especially, who need uh, special encouragement from your word tonight. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, the American author Marilyn Robinson has a series of uh, novels set in small-town America. Gilead, Lila uh, and Jack are three of the four. Um, reflecting the setting and two of the key characters. And the second novel is simply called Home. Home. Um, In giving uh, her book that title and in setting all four of the novels in in a close-knit community, Robinson is connecting with one of the great longings of the human heart, the longing for home. Home, sweet home. There's no place like it, said Dorothy, and she was right. To feel at home, to know you belong is one of the best feelings in the world. But to be far away from home, to to feel like a stranger in the place that you live is deeply painful. I think this, this longing is intensified every December. We even sing about it, I'll be home for Christmas, driving home for Christmas. Every human being longs for home. And this longing exists in our hearts for a reason. Ever since the fall, men and women have lived east of Eden. Deep down in human beings is a heartfelt desire to get back to paradise lost. And throughout history, there have been all sorts of attempts to build that heaven on earth. And communism, uh, the failure of communism is just one example. And through revolution, through war, through technological advancement, through political ideology, men and women have tried and failed and tried and failed again and again and again to make, to create a perfect world. The wonderful message of the Bible is that one day that which was lost will be found. God will bring about a new creation. And Isaiah chapter 11 is, I think, one of the places in the Bible where we we see that hope most clearly. As we look at it tonight, uh, just three uh, points. Firstly, In this chapter, we see a new king, a new king. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, verse 1. Maybe you you hear those words, you hear my uh, first point, a new king. And you think, well, that uh, sounds a little bit more like gardening 
than kingship. What is going on? The word king isn't even used in these opening verses. But Jesse is the key to understanding it. Maybe you remember the passage that Andy preached on last Sunday, the long list of names in Matthew chapter 1. And in verse 6 of that chapter, we read that Jesse was the father of King David. So when Isaiah picks up that name, he has King David in mind. Someone is going to come from Jesse's line. He will be like a shoot, a branch from him. But why not say from David's line? Well, many point out that what is being emphasized here is that this promised king won't just be in David's line. He will be another David. He will be like another David, a new beginning. But apart from this royal connection, well, he doesn't seem to have very impressive uh, beginnings, does he? I'm not much of a gardener, but seeing he comes from a stump... Well, it doesn't sound great, doesn't it? A stump is obviously left. What's left when a tree is chopped down, when it's dead? There was a reference to to stumps this morning in in Andy's first reading, Isaiah chapter 11. Um, In chapter 6, we see that when Isaiah is called, he's told that judgment is coming. A stump is mentioned there. He's told that God's people wouldn't listen to him as he spoke God's words. He was told that the land would be laid waste and like a forest reduced to stumps. And I think this makes verse 1 astonishing. God is promising to send his people a new king, a new David. But look at God's timing. Look when he does it. Not when God's people are asking for a king. Not when God's people are listening to him. He does it when all seems lost. It's so typical of the God of the Bible, isn't it? But what will this king be like? Well, look at verse 2. Do you see the repeated uh, references to God's spirit? The word is mentioned um, four times, but there are really seven aspects to it. God's spirit will rest upon him, the beginning of verse 2. And then there are three pairs. He will have wisdom and understanding and counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And at various points in the Old Testament, God's spirit empowered different individuals. And think of Samson or, or even David. But what is being described here is so much greater than that. Someone is coming, Isaiah says, who will be empowered by God's Spirit like never before. Now as Christians uh, tonight, you and I, we read the Old Testament backwards, don't we? Uh, We know the ending And I think it's impossible for us not to see the Lord Jesus Christ here. Do you remember his baptism? Matthew tells us that the heavens opened and the Spirit of God descended like a dove to rest on him. This is Jesus being spoken about in 
verse 2 and verse 3. And look at his job description. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide disputes by what his eyes hear. What does that mean? Someone has put it like this. He has the ability to distinguish between appearance and reality. He has the ability to distinguish between appearance and reality. Now, you and I cannot do that, can we? And we don't know what's going on inside people's hearts. It's never wise for us to judge people's motives. But this king can. This king knows what's going on in our hearts. Not only that, though, he cares for those in need with righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And Solomon, and David's son, he was... A bit like this, wasn't he? Do you remember how he solved a dispute between two women at the start of his reign? But one greater than Solomon is being promised here. You see, look at the power of his words, verse 4. There's, this is no earthly king. And look what he's wearing, verse 5. Righteousness and faithfulness. Friends, we need a ruler like this. If we were to have a new creation, this is the kind of ruler that we need. And every four or five years, we're told, aren't we, that politician, and I don't know how we feel about politicians tonight, but politician A, B, or C will bring us the future we long for. And maybe it's Blair, things can only get better. Maybe it's Boris with leveling up. But whatever side of the political spectrum we naturally slide towards, we, we need to realize that no politician can do verse 4, can they? If there is really going to be a new creation, it won't be by our efforts. It won't be by our strategy, our plans. It won't be brought about by voting for the right candidate, having the right politicians in power. No, we need a king. We need a king. And this is what God has promised us. A new king. Secondly, though, we see his new world. His new world. Uh, Verses 6 to 9, they are shot through with what the, the Bible scholars would call Edenic imagery. And there's there's a link back to Eden in these verses. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall, shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. Now, what's amazing is that those words I've just read, they do not happen, do they, in a post-fall world? No, there is a food chain and wolves eat, eat lambs. And life as we know it after the fall is nature red in tooth and claw. If we watch one of uh, David Attenborough's documentaries, what do we see? Lots of death. But in verses 6 to 9, there is no more hostility. Do you see that? There There is a real sense of harmony here. Animals are eating together rather than eating each other. 
And not only that, the beautiful reference to a child leading them. In verse 6, and, and, and a nursing child playing in verse 8 makes it clear that this will be a world with no more danger. No more danger. Now, our son Michael, he has a lion in his cot, but it's a toy lion. Um, you wouldn't let a child anywhere near a real one, would you? If uh, we did, you'd be straight on the phone to social services. But the picture here is of life as it was back in the garden. Back in the garden. Now maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into this, but I think the reference to snakes is uh, significant. How did the fall come about through a serpent? What did that cause? Hurt and destruction of all different kinds. But one day Isaiah says, all these things will be no more. One day God's king will bring a whole new world. One day God's king will will put, as one of my friends says, the curse in reverse. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I don't know what you think of uh, the end of verse 9 there, if you look at it. Um, I've always thought that was um, quite an unusual phrase. Um, The same phrase is used in Habakkuk chapter 2. Why not say the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as kind of land and sea cover the planet? Seems strange. Water covering the sea. Well, um, having thought about that a bit and and read around and, and considered what others think, I think a good word to use here would be drenched, drenched. Because if waters are flowing over the sea, they've already flown over the ground. The earth will be full, Isaiah says, of the knowledge of God. Now, it's not like that now, is it? Paul says in Romans chapter 3, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. But one day they will. And there are wonderful hints of this in other Old Testament passages. Just listen to Jeremiah chapter 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Knowing God, this is our greatest privilege. God is the one Adam and Eve knew back in the garden. They walked with him. And God has promised that one day you and I will all know him as we're fully known. And for Christians, that knowing starts now. I wonder if you remember um, the prayer that Jesus prayed just before he went to the cross. Um, In John chapter 17, um, he prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And he prays for all of those who would put their trust in him. That means he prayed for you, for I, tonight. We were on his heart as he went to the cross. 
At the start of that prayer, he prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, he said. How would you finish that sentence? Now this is eternal life. That they live forever in heaven. That's not what he says. This is eternal life, that that all suffering is finally over. That's true, but it's not what he says. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing God, knowing him, that is our goal, our great goal as God's people. To move from uh, the sublime to the ridiculous, Um, Christmas is a time, isn't it, when uh, we often hear all kinds of uh, very cheesy songs. One of the cheesiest of all, all I want for Christmas is you, I won't sing it. But Mariah Carey was onto something, wasn't she? All of us long to be loved. All of us long to be known. All of us long to know. St. Augustine and uh, his work is a little more profound than Miss Carey's. Put it like this. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And Isaiah would agree, the promise in verses 6 to 9 is that one day all who trust in Christ will enjoy this wonderful new creation. We will be with the one who made us. There will be no more conflict. There will be no more tears, no more death. Instead, people from every tribe and tongue and nation will gather together in God's presence, knowing him forever. And that brings me to my final point. In this chapter, we don't just see a new king. We don't just see his new world. We also see his new people. His new people. And we've mentioned already that this king is going to be a greater than David. I think we see that in verse 10. If you look at it very closely... Do you see how he's described? This time he's not the shoot, but the root. He's not just the shoot of Jesse. That's how he's described in verse 1. No, here he's the root of Jesse. Now, if you remember the the genealogy in Matthew, if you were to look it up later, then you'd you'd recall that uh, in one sense, the root of Jesse was Obed. That was his uh, father. But I don't think that's really who's in view here either. When Isaiah calls this figure the root of Jesse, he is telling us that he is the one who gave him life. In other words, it's God himself. He is the source of Jesse. 
He is the offspring of Jesse. This figure will be, as Andy mentioned this morning, divine and human. He's the root and he's the shoot. And he is the one that one day all nations will look to. In verses 11 to 16, we see the Lord gathering all his people under this king. Look at all the different lands that are mentioned in verse 11. Some of them were the enemies of Israel, Assyria, um, Egypt, the place of slavery, Shinar is another name for Babylon. So God is saying that this king spoken of in this chapter will have a universal people. People will be brought to him from north, south, east and west. They will be gathered together after the exile. And when they come, there will be harmony between them. Harmony. There'll be no more jealousy. Look at verse 13. No more jealousy between God's people. No more harassing each other. But harmony, unity, fellowship, all of God's people together. Um, A few years ago, um, my dad and I, we went on holiday uh, to Berlin together. It was a 90th birthday celebration. He was 60, I was 30. And we each came home with a bit of the Berlin Wall, probably fake. And uh, in so many ways, that, that wall was an illustration, wasn't it, of humanity, divided, separated from one another, whole families, um, separated uh, during that period. It's often the same in the church, isn't it? But the promise of this chapter is that one day God will have a united people. One day God will unite the nations under the Lord Jesus Christ. I think there's echoes too here of um, the exodus. If you look at the end of the chapter, God's people are brought across a river in sandals, verse 15, there will be a highway, there will be a remnant, all those who oppose them will be, will be struck down, destroyed. That is the future God has in store for us. And it's just like we saw last week, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God has decided that his king is going to have a people. No one can stop him. And no one who belongs to him will ever be forgotten. And maybe it's just uh, the time of year, or maybe this tells you more about me, um, but I couldn't help thinking of um, Home Alone when I wrote those words. Um, High culture at the beginning with a reference to Marilyn Robinson But Home Alone is a great film, isn't it? Um, Home Alone 2 as well. Home Alone 3 we won't talk about. But do you remember the story? Little Kevin McAllister left behind as his family go on an amazing Christmas holiday. Now it's a silly illustration, isn't it? But I think often as God's people, we can, we can imagine that something like that one day might happen to us and God. That God will forget us. 
Well, listen to these words from a little later in Isaiah, chapter 49. Can a mother forget? Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, it does happen. Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Maybe you need a reminder of that tonight. I mentioned John chapter 17 earlier. Well, listen to what Jesus prays for us near the end of that chapter. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. If you're a Christian, you are someone who has been given to God the Son by God the Father. Brothers and sisters, we belong to him And he wants us to be with him one day, to see his glory. And his promise is that one day we will. God has promised us home for Christmas, home with him. So do you feel feel homesick? Do you long for that new creation? Do you see the great king God has for you tonight? Do you see the wonderful world that he has promised? Can you see your face in Christ's crowd? When he appeared, a weary world rejoiced. And when he comes again, that joy, that joy will never, never end. Let's pray. Father, sometimes as we think about these things, they, are so, they seem so big and so uh, great and so grand that we can uh, hardly take them in. We feel we were, are only scratching the edges of them. And yet we thank you that they are still true. And true for each one of us tonight who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the great king. How we thank you that one day he will rule over a renewed creation. And how we thank you that as uh, your people, we will live forever in harmony and joy and in wonder under his great rule. We pray that you would cement these things in our minds, in our hearts, and in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And for his sake, amen. Well, we sing uh, to close uh, Psalm 24, uh, the last uh, section, verses 7 to 10. Um, A wonderful psalm that speaks um, of this king that we've just uh, read of. You ancient gates, lift up your heads. You doors, be opened wide. So may the king of glory come. And isn't that a great line? Forever forever to abide. Let's stand and sing.